Hello, great minds. It's Friday, and that means it's time to grab a drink with some great minds in history. So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Zach DiBacco, sort of rolling with Mr. DGMH at this point. It seems that way must be the teacher in me. But today we welcome back Dr. Sherry Valencic, our resident psych teacher on the show, as we get ready to discuss the absolutely beautiful mind of Le Roi Soleil. And again, I know, I totally probably fucked that up. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Sherry, I completely forgot to ask, did you want to sing the song? I didn't. Maybe next time. Not a singer. Maybe next time. That's okay. So welcome back, Sherry. How have you been? I'm great. Uh, Looking forward to uh, a great last week of vacation before we head back. So speaking of that, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I actually, I, I, I plan this well. I have a friend of mine who introduced me to Vouvray wine about 15 years ago. Have you ever heard of it? No, but that's like VU, like V-O-U. It's V-O-U-V-R-A-Y, and it is a French wine, and it is on the sweeter side. The one that I picked up uh, at Publix, actually, is by Barton and Gustier, uh, and it says, but uh, it's as good of a French wine as any, and uh, it is a nice substitute for a Riesling or a Moscato uh, with a little bit of French flair. As most people know, I'm a cheap drunk, and this one indeed comes with a screw top as well, okay. uh, but it is a very nice, uh, sweet white wine. All right. Wait, let me see. Jackie, does Vouvray mean something? Vouvray? Does that mean something? I know Vouvray, but it's Vouvray. It's the name of a wine. No. It's not like a tense or anything? V-O-U-V-R-A-Y. Very sure. No, it's not real. Uh-huh. And no real French word would end in A-Y. Oh, really? Oh, A-Y. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All well, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a category of wine, much like, you know, Pinot or Sauvignon. It's okay, a, it's a Vouvray. Yes. Oh, oh, it's like re- Vouvray. I understand. That's not the brand. It's the style no, it of wine. I don't even think I can. I see. Okay, I'll have to dig into this more. I'll have to try at some point. No, it's, it's really good. And uh, like I said, for, for people who like sweeter wines, it's uh, I, I think it's not as pedestrian as a Moscato is and uh, makes you feel a little bit nicer it, drinking the, something Moscato that's... Moscato pre- is so pedestrian. <laughs> well, and, and it is, but there there's a time and a place for pedestrian wines. But uh, no, I really enjoyed this. And uh, again, uh, it's a price point. It's like a $15 wine. I'm drinking something that's a terrible price point, and I rated it on the very first episode of DGMH was Corona. Terrible price point, but I'm drinking Corona Premier, uh, which is, again, uh, only 2.6 carbs. Felt like I've been drinking a lot, and I just wanted something to sit light. But also, Corona is Spanish for a crown. Uh, so the crown, you know, woo, King Louis. Doesn't Corona little... have something? To, doesn't it have something to do with the sun? It's, it's, yeah, there's, there's a crown. layer. There is a layer of the sun that is called the Corona. I'm not a science teacher, but I believe yeah, yeah. that to be true. Yeah, there's some science. Yeah, I don't know science. I mean, God, I'd probably better at math than I am at science. But no, Corona Premier, two point six carbs. I might rate it on an episode down the road if I'm desperate. But no. Nope, what, what makes it? What makes it Premier? Just its carb content. 
It's, yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I'm not rating it officially right now, but if I'm going to tell you the truth, one of the best light beers I've ever had because it's only 2.6 carbs and yet it still tastes like Corona. But also, Louis is the premier uh, example of a what a monarch should be. And uh, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. We'll talk about is that what your is, is that your argument? That he is the example of what a monarch should be? He is the example of an absolute monarch, of what an absolute monarch should be. So, when you teach or learn about absolutism, you're learning about Louis the Fourteenth and people who did it like Louis. You know, I, I guess let me say it like this: there is the scale, and you're either somewhere on the range of Charles the First, who lost their heads, uh, or you're King Louis the Fourteenth, who died with unquestioned power. You know, there are plenty of people in the middle. Uh, Catherine's past the middle, but not quite Louis. But Louis reigns in what's called the age of absolutism. Well, at this point, I, I hope that our listeners have checked out the episode on King Louis Fourteenth. But if not, they totally should go and do that, uh, hopefully before listening to this. But I have learned by now that it's just smarter for old Mr. GGMH to let Dr. V uh, get us started. So what are you thinking for our subject today? A man who is often called the son of the state, the example of absolutism, and a man that you said you knew nothing about before listening to the episode. Uh, I knew nothing about him other than him having some kind of connection uh, with France. But one of the things that struck me about podcasts and in doing a little bit of research on him is how young he was when all of this business started. The man had no childhood. And I think that that is something that bears uh, some, some respect to go into as far as uh, understanding his behaviors um, as as an absolute monarch. Okay. I, I'm not going to steal what you're going to talk about, but just beyond the age at when he became so thrown into monarchy, the way, the climate of the world in which he entered, you know, uh, is something worth bringing up too. The, the state of, the chaotic state of not only his state, but the states around him, his, his European world. So go ahead. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the podcast, his bedroom as a child was actually invaded as part of the Fronde, I believe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think when we take a look at the timeline here, um, the first thing that I started thinking of was this um, idea that comes out of the, the debate in psychology of nature versus nurture, and is it your genetic composition or your environment that most profoundly affects your mental processes and behaviors. Uh, but I think looking at Louis XIV's story, it begs an investigation into um, exactly what happened during what's called his critical period, uh, which is the, the time in development where you are particularly responsive to environmental stimuli. And, you know, most books say that that's from birth through age five. Um, we're starting to see some evidence now that maybe it starts at conception, that we need to give um, a a little bit more attention to what happens in utero. And then some people now are saying that it actually ends at age three. So if we're, if we're looking at a timeline with Louis XIV, um, he did not have what we would consider a normal childhood, even for the era into which he was born, um, and how that shaped his behaviors um, as the longest reigning European monarch of all time. So I, I, I think that's what I started thinking about when I was uh, researching a little bit about him. Yeah, for sure. And you've kind of opened up a moment for me to make a, a minor mathematical correction uh, that on the show, I was listening to it again today. Um, you know, I said he became king at five. And I think 
he, I'm not sure when his coronation was. He might have been five when that happened. But when his father died, he was like in the late fours. So not a huge well, difference, but I did want to make sure I caught that. And it's interesting that you said that because I was actually looking up some information as to when he was actually coronated. You know, they, they talked about him reaching the age of majority. Mm -hmm. He was 13 years old and then giving him all the power. Yeah, he so, was not, uh, his coronation happened in uh, 1654. So we're talking a, a teenage Louis, because you, you wouldn't be, he started his reign in 1643, and it wasn't until 11, 12 years later that he, he, was, he was crowned king and really started to step into it in his own right. And he really wouldn't begin ruling as absolute monarch until, I believe, 1661 is when Mazarin died. Uh, and so then when, when he became king and he was given the absolute power, what happened to Anne? Did she just oh, fizzle out into the background or what happened to her? Yes. Um, you, you know, Anne died in 1666. And, you know, she probably just kind of faded. Uh, Anne kind of worshipped Louis. So Anne would have had no problem relinquishing his God-given rights to him. She built the persona that was God on earth. And Louis learned very early on to kind of grab whatever he could to reinforce that. It's deeper than that, but it is true that he was kind of just, he made himself absolute. Back to some pretty basic Freudian ideas. Um, you know, I had this idea of absolutism was fed by his mommy. I think that he had oh. mommy issues. From the research that I did independently, it seems that he and Anne had a very close relationship with each other, um, that not only did they co-reign for a series of years, but they also had um, a lot of um, interests that um, Anne fed to him and that he cultivated. Part of his behavior was also shaped by this influence of his mother. And, Absolutely. You know, that I completely is, agree with you. A mother who, by the way, and I saved this tidbit for Twist of Psych, actually, uh, almost let Louis drown. Uh, because she believed that God would not let him drown. So yeah, uh, you, you know, the divine rightism, the whole God's thing on earth was definitely promoted by Anne. And, so and I, thought, I thought it was interesting, I read, and I think you mentioned this in the podcast, that she had had four miscarriages or four stillborns, and he was the only, he was the only child who lived? No, there were two. Two children, him and his brother Philip, uh, Philippe the Duke of Orléans. Um, so, what else are you thinking? Well, anyways, I was just—I I was just really thinking about the influence of of his mother. You know, when we talk about this critical period, that I mean, they they seem to have not only a a business relationship with each other, but a loving, nurturing relationship with each other. And, um, you know, when we look at somebody, I, I one of the things I thought was really interesting was looking at all the artwork that has been produced about Louis Fourteenth, and a lot of historians seem to indicate that he is one of the most... Um, one of the most duplicated monarchs in history and art and sculpture and painting. Sure. Um, and I, I always think that that, uh, that, you know, brings brings a little bit of an air of, uh, of what you said you wanted to talk about, which was, you know, being narcissistic or having a God complex. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I don't think, you know, I, I wrestle with the idea of, of, you know, claiming that somebody is a narcissist only because I think that almost everybody that we profiled so far on the podcast has characteristics of being narcissistic. I don't know how you couldn't have those right. characteristics right. as a leader. This idea of believing that you are the law, you are religion, yeah. you are God. That's something that emer is emerging. Uh, it's very popular in England uh, in the early 1600s. It's called divine right of kings. Uh, that the throne is not a, uh, that the king's throne is not a throne of man, but the throne of God. And whether it's his tutor uh, Mazarin, the first minister of state, his mother, 
or his uh, religious advisor, Jacques Bossuet. You say they're just constantly pounding, pelting him with this idea. You're, you're, you're the God King. You are, you know, and, and he certainly embraced it for all it could be in terms of uh, literally embracing it, you know, fashioning himself as, as God and the pageantry that came along with it, you know, having himself painted as God. And that's kind of one of the stories is somebody painted him as Apollo and he's like, oh yeah, cool. You know, <laughs> that's me. I'm Apollo. You know, I don't think he literally thought he was a God, but he knew that it could further his position. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting is, you know, with, with his practicing of Catholicism, I mean, what, what did the Pope say about that at the time? Because certainly that would have been in, in conflict with some of the basic premises of Catholicism. No, I can't even simplify it. The story of France in religion is one of the more complicated ones. If one state, before, before it was the cool thing to do, if one state in Europe resisted or gave pushback to the power of popes, it was France. I mean, the French literally kidnapped a pope, forced him to live in Avignon, and then had their own papacy for a hundred years or so, you know, so until they finally- Was that during, during, during Louis' reign? Oh, no, 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 that's, that's in the 12th, or, the, or it's, a, it's a mess in the, I think, 1300s is when it was happening. But, um, the, but this is 600 years later, or, or 300 years later. Yeah, so then France just keeps being a religious dick. France is always kind of resisting the power of the Pope, and then they go through the Protestant Reformation in their own cycle of religious wars, and very famously, uh, King Louis' grandfather, Henry IV, uh, was a Protestant who converted to Catholicism, and he famously supposedly said, Paris is worth a mass. That is to say, fuck it, I'll be Catholic just to get Paris just to get control of the capital. So the religious turmoil in France kind of predates religious turmoil in Europe as a whole before the Protestant Reformation. So it's a total fucking mess. But jumping back to psych, um, since we brought up this whole God complex thing, now sometimes on the show, we do break away from the DSM-5. Maybe because it's got a slightly fun twist to it. Maybe because sometimes things have a psychological influence, but they're not, uh, as Sherry pointed out to me, they're not something that's diagnosable. Is that the way to say it? The DSM-5 are things that can be di diagnosed by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, yes? Right. So the DSM-5 is published in 2013, and it's largely considered the United States authority on psychiatric diagnoses. Now, there are other texts and resources that are used throughout the world, um, the one that is usually referenced with the DSM-5 um, is what's called the ICD-10, and that's the International Classification of Diseases, uh, which is managed by the World Health Organization, which has been in the news a lot lately. But the DSM-5 is, is what practicing psychologists and psychologists who are trying to either provide an intervention with therapy or help diagnose somebody who's got some mental process right. uh, or behavioral issues. Um, there are lots of concepts that largely have been um, perpetuated in the media or in a culture um, that we typically can have a general understanding of. Like For sure. complex. You know, with that, it's important to recognize these differences and what we think as psychological concepts and what are actually psychological disorders. The DSM-5, I mean, like most people that want to look up something psychological are going to go to a Facebook group or psychology today. And I'm not saying that psychology today is off 100% or anything like that. I really don't have the experience to judge. But I'm saying you can look up a God complex on psychology today and go the rest of your life thinking, well, I've got a God complex. I, I have a psychological disorder. It's just who I am. So, you know, I think it's sort of important. And of course, uh, you know, we've, we've covered, we've done this before. We've kind of 
talked about things, whether, you know, was when I brought up Nymphomania with uh, Catherine or the uh, the Broken Heart with Jefferson and others, uh, Stalin. I, I don't well. think, I don't, wait a minute. I don't think you brought up the Broken no, no, no. That I'm sorry. That's we. We have broken away with this before. So when we've brought up nymphomania on the show or the broken heart or with Jefferson specifically, we looked at dehumanization. Uh, so I figured, why the hell not keep it up a little bit and educate the listeners as to what we think about this whole God, God complex idea, but while also recognizing the important fact that it's not a diagnosable. I can't say that. It's not something that can be diagnosed by a psychiatrist. I think, I think the other interesting thing is, is that when you look at some of these ideas that have come as part of our vernacular um, in the English language, is they, a lot of them are rooted in different diagnosable psychological conditions. Like, for example, there's a narcissistic personality disorder mm-hmm. yeah. uh, where, where somebody has, you know, uh, inflated um, ideas that they are more admirable than they really are influential that they really are. And I think when we look at something like a God complex, it's probably rooted in narcissism. Context is everything. Yes, for sure. Context is everything. So it doesn't really, you know, Louis can never be diagnosed by a psychiatrist formally because no psychiatrist has ever met Louis the 14th because psychiatry didn't exist when Louis was around, you know? So, but, you know, as we talk about this God complex, I read in one interesting article that somebody was trying to coin it as called God bug syndrome. I think that fits even better for Louis. There are, he he is God over his subjects, his bugs. But, uh, you know, Louis might have been a narcissist. He certainly uh, has a little bit of a superiority issue, certainly painting himself as a God. I did think it was interesting in my research of the God complex is that one person that you love very dearly was actually accused of having a, not God complex, but a Jehovah complex. Sigmund Freud was actually accused by late his uh, successors down the road in the, uh, First time it came up was in the late 1800s or something like that. And then in the early 1900s, somebody accused him of having, not personally, but looking back and saying, Freud definitely had a Jehovah complex. Now, Freud was Jewish, yes? Yes. Yes. So that, I, I thought that was an interesting, fun fact. You know, again, when you, when you look at somebody who is narcissistic, and you look at what they feel about their ability or their privilege or their infallibility. I don't know how much of that belonged to Louis the Fourteenth or how much of that was really influenced by his mother, because most people don't have those uh, kind of extreme characteristics. And I, I really think that um, I, you know I thought it was interesting that you chose to focus on Franny in the margins, and I, I think that Anne would have also been a good person to focus on in the margins because he would not have become the absolute monarch if somebody wasn't telling that five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, all the way up to the 13-year-old and the 16-year-old that he was not by divine right, that he did not, you know, by birthright have the absolute power. And the person who was telling him that was his mom. Well, and others, but you're right. His mom is not excluded from that in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, the reality is I actually would have preferred that. I didn't enjoy covering, uh, you know, Franny as much as I have other characters in the margin, maybe because I already knew a lot about her. and would have been would have been fascinating. Uh, but we covered it pretty nicely on this show, so maybe it's better that we didn't. You know, as always, I don't see the point in talking about Louis' many lovers. You know, one of my favorite things I always love to talk about Louis, aside from Versailles, which is like, you're compensating for something, Louis, except I'm pretty sure he wasn't compensated for anything. But Versailles, I mean, that's just such a cool thing. It's like, I'm going to trap everybody that I want to be subservient to me that could question my power in a place where my power is put on the ultimate display. You know, I just think that he took it to a new level. And I think that that level of pageantry, that that imagery, you know, I, I said in the podcast, the image of the king was all became, if not more important, if not all, if not as important, maybe more important 
than the actual actions of the king. Well, and I think I think another idea that we could explore for a long time with Louis the Fourteenth or any other monarch is this idea of enabling, though. Too, I mean, you know, when somebody becomes an enabler, I mean, we usually talk about that where when it comes to addiction. But he could have never had the power that he did if he didn't have a court that enabled him and family who enabled him and um, the nobility that ena enabled him. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, maybe we need to look at this. I mean, this would be a whole nother episode, but in light of an addiction uh, that he was addicted to his power. I think so. And I think we don't see it like play in a negative way because it, it's, I mean, it's kind of masked and to really get into that, we'd have to talk about the religious uh, nature of France, the, the fear of the irrational fear, almost like a xenophobic fear of people of other religions. The idea that William was constantly conspiring to undermine his authority uh, did, did, Louis the, did Louis the Fourteenth kill people? Yeah, or put them in iron mass. Yeah, he was willing to do brutal things to, to maintain power, but he didn't normally have to because he had a new thing that kings that came before him didn't really have was that large standing army. You know, he was always like... Court was pretty large, though, too, because Versailles is massive. Yes, and the gardens alone. I, there's just every... Like I said in the show, I could have done an episode on Versailles itself because... The details of Versailles, what went into it, making a hall of mirrors that's meant to look like it goes on forever, like it is endless. I often wonder, was it a show for him too? Was he like, this is great. Guys, what we're going to do is we're going to dress me up like the sun, make everybody think I'm fucking God, it's going to work out great. Or did he buy into it more? I just kind of wonder, was he like so many other... I, I think he had mommy whispering in his ear, and even after she had passed, I think that her influence continued in his life until he died. Well... I, you know, and I agree. And, you know, just to kind of wrap up, I appreciate you explaining the, the whole psych the gap between it and psychology, but I did want to provide our listeners with a makeshift definition of what a God complex superiority complex or God bugs complex might be. It's a person with unshakable belief in their personal ability, status, even infallibility, who often refuses to admit any chance of error, mistake, or failure, uh, even if there's proof of failure. They perceive themselves as omniscient or omnip omnipotent. I almost said omnipotent. Oh my God, that's cringy. Uh, and treat others as mortals. I, I, I feel like, you know, Louis took it to a new, new level. You were, you were allowed to butcher that word because you said Huguenot several times throughout the podcast. I, so. Huguenot, but yeah. I, I heard, uh, I, I read that when we look at narcissism or the idea of a God complex, that it is a psychological fantasy. And I thought that was a really simple way to kind of sum up um, what, what, it, what, what it is. And I think that we can look at many celebrities and perhaps people in the government 2020 that we still see that idea of people who live in a psychological fantasy and i i don't you know i, I think that there are positive parts about living in a fantasy when you are in a, but um you know you gotta wonder how much of this again was fed from this critical period this very early age reinforced or enabled by his mother mm -hmm. um and I for sure I, I i totally i i totally agree uh, i think there's things we could talk about with his obsession with war his obsession with Versailles, his obsession with spending money, uh, his control issues of refusing to work with the finance or, or uh, first minister. Uh, there's so many great things we could have talked about. But yeah, and I think the, using the word fantasy really is fitting for King Louis. But I did have one final question. And honestly, I thought I was opening some sort of uh, Pandora's box uh, and bringing this up. I thought it would be endless, but you actually brought it up. So I kind of wanted to end with your simple answer to the question, do you think the Sun King was born or made? I know this is the nature versus nurture argument you brought up earlier, uh, but what do you think? And then I'll, I'll 
share what, what I thought, and then we'll wrap it up. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm going with the nurture side of the debate. Um, it is very odd for me to choose that. I'm a, I'm a naturalist by, by lots of different um, standards. My students will say that I, I believe heavily in the power of genes, but um, this, this boy had his mom shaping him from a really early age. Um, he was born and raised in warfare. He knew nothing other than a highly, I mean, use the word pageanted life. Um, and so I think when we look at the environmental influences on how he developed as a leader, um, I think they far outshone any kind of genetic influence uh, that he may have had. I don't know if he was a smart man. Um, I don't know what his creativity was like. I mean, he obviously was a, a great manipulator to be able to do what he did. I think that there are genetic components to that. I, I think he had a heavy environmental influence in the earliest years of his life. Um, and I think that's why he behaved as he did. I completely agree with you. And, and I think that uh, so many kings, I think the kings that fail, I would point to to nature, uh, you know, but these kings that, uh, like Louis, uh, you know, I, I'm going to side with you 100% and add in the uh, difficulty of his early uh, childhood reign with the Fraun that you brought up earlier, just being like made by the, not only people in his life, but the events that he encountered. Hating Paris for, I mean, he never slept in Paris once Versailles was built. You know, I just see a king that was made by the people, uh, made and shaped by the people who raised him, the people who served him, and the events that he encountered. So, And his mother. And his mother, yes. Uh, his mother is included in that. Anything else you want to add or should I close the close it up? That's it. I will tell you that my knowledge of Louis XIV has increased by about a thousandfold over the past seventy-two hours. So, uh, did you like the episode? I did. I thought it was. I thought it had some of your best one-liners. Good. I'm glad. Bad, badass felt hats. That was great. Uh, I just like to talk about beavers and incest. I found. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, but as a uh, as a great fan of the War of eighteen twelve, have an affinity for uh, those rodents as well. Although I will uh, stop short of saying that I have an affinity for beaver. So <laughs> you just said it. All right. Well, that brings the show to a close. Uh, what are you pointing at? You drank that much I'm wine? I'm pointing at, yes, that I have drunk uh, two-thirds of a bottle of Vouvray. I'm, I'm back indoctrinated into it. I, it's got I, more French I, I, words on it. Le Petit Parcel, P-A-R-C-E-L-L-E-S. I don't know what that means. It's from know. the Loire Valley. Yes, okay. I believe that's in France, right? Yeah, 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 very, very big wine region. Or I could turn around and read the synopsis of the wine on the back in English. You could totally do that. But before we do that, I must say, be sure to follow DGMH on Instagram and Twitter uh, at DGMH underscore History Podcast and join the Drinks with Great Minds in History Facebook group too. There you can share your drinking picks, comments, and provide me with any questions you have to uh, be answered on Shots Heard Around the World in two weeks. If you love DGMH, be sure to leave the show a great, hopefully, five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to go back and catch up on all our episodes that you haven't listened to already. Well, uh, we have to close the show right, Sherry, so what are you doing a shot of tonight? Okay, so uh, first do a shot of bourbon, since uh, Louis XIV was from the House of Bourbon. However, I will fully acknowledge that I had a very 
add experience on my summer jaunt to Ohio with a bourbon cocktail. So I won't be going there anymore. So I am actually having a shot of, uh, I think, a newer brand of vodka called Vale Vodka. Uh, it is vanilla, and it is out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, but since I'm drinking Vouvray, and Louis the Fourteenth has a V in the Roman number, and this is Bale, and it's vanilla, I'm, and my last name is Valencic, I'm just going with the whole V thing. For sure, and that all that shit would have been in Louis's empire. Uh, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis, that would have been in the, uh, the, the area. Uh, well, I am drinking a Canadian whiskey, Crown Royal, uh, sticking with the Crown theme. But I managed to grab a little glass of a St. Petersburg glass with a little sun on it. You know, I thought that was... Oh, it looked like a baby food jar. Yeah, it does. It's it's a bigger shot than I wanted. But I will say a little bit of crown. So here's to you, Sherry. Thanks for coming on the show. We raise a glass uh, tonight to uh, Louis the Fourteenth and to you, Sherry. Uh, we still have more to discuss on the next two episodes, but I will say this has been one of my favorite psych topics yet. Uh, so, salute uh, to you. Oh, I don't know. That's starting That's to go down good. smoother. Cheers.